Isaiah 41 into 42. Beginning at verse 21. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so that we may know you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know, or beforehand so that we could say, he was right? No one told of this, no one foretold it, no one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. This is God's word. Great God and Father, help us to understand this rightly, what, what was going on back then that Isaiah said this to a people in Babylon. Help us see what it means for us today. But Father, more than that, more than just, we don't want just to understand. Father, we want to respond as you desire with trusting obedience and delight. Father, help us to sing in response to what we hear. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, at the moment, our current sort of one of our little box set naughtinesses is, is uh, 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 Harry Bosch. Do you like Harry Bosch? Uh, 25 novels. I've read a good chunk of them. And there are eight television series of whatever, how many episodes. We're about halfway through. But anyway, uh, Harry Bosch, he's an L.A. detective. It's, it's good stuff, really. I mean, you know, a bit violent, etc. But, you know. Um, uh, and uh, the current season, the, 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 the narrative is this. A very prominent black lawyer has been shot probably by a white policeman in L.A., um, you know, all sorts of... Now, did he do it or did he do it, not do it? Ooh, well, that's, you know, watch 10 hours of it and you'll find out. Um, but every episode, of course, this, the, 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 the backdrop to this is enormous tension 
in the city. They're anxious about riots. But every episode, you see the crowd gathered outside the police station with their placards and they're chanting relentlessly, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. So that's every episode, no justice, no peace. And it's a very effective cry. It's simple. It tells people what you want. It's pretty memorable. I just found myself cycling in that and just thinking, well, just, just, just. it sort of gets into your head uh, a little bit. No justice, no peace. And at the center of our passage today is the work of the servant of the Lord, particularly in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 42, and that he will bring justice. Now, in the world of cops and Harry Bosch and courtrooms, that is, dare I say, merely legal justice. The justice that Isaiah speaks of is a broader concept, not just judicial. It's fullness. It's a whole society that runs rightly according to the Creator's plans. It's not just a right legal verdict. It's mishpat is the word. It's society transformed. It's not merely, if I can put it in that sense, because it matters so very much, but it's not merely accurate and fair verdicts in the royal courts of justice. It's not just that. It's no pensioner being on their own own and cold and unable to pay their bills. It's no even hint of the mega-rich and tax-avoidance schemes. It's a just and fair society, and everyone can see it. There is no discrimination. There is no lack. There is no neglect anywhere. Justice. That is what justice means in Old Testament concepts in the world of Isaiah. And we're told here humanity will never bring it in itself. The only way you can have that level of just society is if God's servant brings it. There is justice. There is peace. It comes as Jesus, Jesus, God's servant, brings it. Now, uh, whether you're visiting or not today, let me orientate ourselves a little bit. Uh, We're spending this term in Isaiah 40 to 48. We may have that. So um, uh, regulars will know uh, we're we're moving our way through at a chunky year of these six chunks of Isaiah. So we've done 1 to 12. So here we are in um, chapters 40 to 48. And the setting here is uh, God's people are in exile. So the, the, the nation was invaded. It was destroyed broken. And certainly all the prominent uh, in society were taken off by the Babylonians, captured, taken in chains into exile to work for them. So by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and there we wept, uh, Psalm 137. Uh, Yet the people are, they've lost everything. They've lost absolutely everything. So they're asking, how can we keep trusting God when we've lost everything? Uh, So really, it's chapters 40 to 55 are the ones written to exile, about exile, but we're just in 40 to 48. And in one sense, the the, the headline or the main theme that comes through is that God will send this man, Cyrus, we'll get to him later on, and his people will be liberated. But that's the historical setting. A people invaded, smashed, destroyed, captured, taken into exile. How can we keep trusting God when our lives look like this? That's the issue. How can we keep trusting God when we're exiled in Babylon? But I think that is the point of comparison between 
them and us. How can we keep trusting God when life looks like this? As I say, for them, they've lost their homeland. They're taken captive into a foreign country. How can they trust him? We are not as acute in that sort of scenario. Of course not. Perhaps Christians today might look around and think, well, golly, how trust the Lord when in our society a, a seemingly very decent woman like Kate Forbes is told, well, you cannot be leader of a national political party because your views are unacceptable. Go away. You think, oh, golly. Absolutely slammed after being interviewed and standing up courageously, nobly, uh, for her Christian views. Probably we feel it a bit, little more personally. How can I trust the Lord when my life looks like this? When this has happened? When I've lost that? When the future looks like this? The temptation for them back then was to think, well, here we are in Babylon. We've just got to run with them. We've just got to be like the Babylonians. We are politically at their power. And culturally, we just can't resist. We can't stand out. Resistance is futile. We have to blend in. Let's just run with their gods, because ours seems to have let us down. Well, let me try and put it in these terms. Uh, only once, and this was years ago, uh, once in my life, I think if I sat in the wrong end of a football stadium, uh, that is, uh, I am a Chelsea fan, always have been, when they were rubbish, like before, not now rubbish, but anyway, when they were like, um, but, always, and, but I remember as in a late teens being taken to a, a match by a friend from school, and uh, it was uh, Chelsea versus Newcastle. Uh, this is 30 years ago, right? So th everything was a little more violent. And... Um, uh, the Newcastle fans, they, they weren't all as nice. They're not like Phoebe Jones, who some would know here. Like nice. Some of them in those days, you know, it's Saturday afternoon. It's time for a fight. Uh, and let's watch some football as well. That was sort of the, 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 the vibe uh, uh, 30 odd years ago. And so I found myself, because he had tickets to the, uh, it was at Chelsea's ground, but I was in the wrong end, the Newcastle end. And of course, initially, you just, you're very conscious, very conscious, you know, so your team score. And you don't say, there's none of that, because you know, you can see around you, there's just a, you know, a sort of suppressed, um, a f suppressed sort of little fist bump. Um, but then, um, it's amazing, actually, even just in 90 minutes, you just get assimilated by the crowd. So we're there annoyed, you're annoyed. When they cheer, you sort of cheer with them. It's amazing how very, very quickly... Your loyalties, or whatever they were, 18 years of loyalties, not particularly deep, I guess, at that moment in time. Um, just, and you just go with the crowd because you've just, you know, there's something about being there and the emotions of it all. And, and, um, and of course, everyone from Newcastle that we know is delightful, of course. Um, uh, so, yeah, you get taken along quite quickly. It's very easy to feel culturally, I must blend in. Sometimes you think about it. But actually, just in our culture, and certainly for those of us who are Christians, after a while, we don't have to think about blending in. We just do. We're just naturally swayed and go with the crowd. 
How can we trust the Lord when our lives look like this, when we're surrounded by people who think differently? Well, the answer here is keep trusting the Lord. He alone knows the future. His servant will bring justice. I'm smuggling in a third. He will gently strengthen us. Okay, those three things. How can we trust the Lord when our lives look like this? Three things. He alone knows the future. His servant will bring justice and he'll gently strengthen us. Those three. Uh, first, and in one sense, this is the dominant idea, but I, I may spend less time on it. Uh, he alone knows the future. Now, this is the truth that frames the passage. So we start off in uh, 21, uh, chapter 41, verse 21, and we're back in the courtroom. This is courtroom battle round two. If you were here last week, they're in the courtroom. Um, here's round two of being in court. But this is a very strange courtroom because the Lord is barrister, But he's putting questions to someone on the witness stand, the idols, the gods of Babylon, but they say nothing. And it's meant to be a slightly ridiculous scene. So just permit me, will you? It's a bit like... So here's here's someone in 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 the witness box... And can you imagine you're in the royal courts, just whatever it is, someone, yeah, can we call the next witness? And someone comes and puts this here. And everyone in the room saying, that's not a real person. That's like a cardboard cutout of someone, probably a man, doing, I'm not sure what he's doing. Um, but, it's, but that's the point here. God is the barrister, and he says, verse 21, well, set forth your arguments. Tell us, you idols, tell us. Uh, What's going to happen next? Tell us what the former things were so we may consider them. Can you explain the last few years of history? Tell us what the future holds, and then we'll know that you're real, that you're gods. Do, verse 23, do something. It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad, so that we we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you're less than nothing. Your works are utterly worthless. Whatever you choose is detestable. God is saying to through Isaiah to the gods of Babylon, do something, do anything, say something, because you're not there, are you? You're just made up. You're just like a cardboard cutout of a god. It's meant to be absurd, is what's happening here. The poor Israelites back then, they've lost everything. They've lost their homes, their homeland, and they're in exile in Babylon. How do we And God is saying, this isn't real. The Babylonians had nine, well, they had lots of gods, but nine prominent, the most prominent was uh, Marduk. Um, And if you went to Babylon uh, around this time, right in the center, the largest, tallest building is the temple to Marduk. And um, very intimidating. This vast thing that looks down upon you. Wherever you went in the city, you'd see his temple. How do we resist? God says, Just ask him to do anything. Ask him anything about the future. Ask him to explain what's happened. And you'll get... Because it's not real. Now look, for you and me, we might think, well, money rules our capital. There are the tall towers of finance ruling the city. The Qatari petrodollars own the shard and look down upon us. Maybe. More obvious probably for many of us is the, the secular mockery of Christian faith 
that seems dominant in culture. How do we resist? Just feels resistance is futile. Do we just not have to blend in? And the Lord says, no. There's nothing there. I'm real. And I tell you what the future holds. It gets a bit more specific in verse 25. The Lord declares, I have one stirred up, excuse me, I've stirred up one from the north and he comes, one from the rising sun who calls my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if a potter treading the clay. Now, it's not named here, but we'll get there in a a little while, but uh, in in chapters 44 and 45, one from the north is Cyrus. You don't need to know all your history, but the dominant empire at this time is Babylon. But coming a few years later is the Persian Empire under King Cyrus, who will defeat Babylon and the Persians become the dominant empire. And God predicts this years before it happens. In fact, over a century before it happens, God says, what's going to happen is this man called Cyrus is going to come. And this empire, which you've from Persia, do you even know where Persia is? It's going to be big in a hundred years' time. They're going to come and invade Babylon and destroy Babylon. (laughs) Hundred years of us. A bit like saying, do you know what? In the year uh, 2123, the global superpower will be Wales. (laughs) Wales will rule the whole world under King Llewellyn Llewellyn. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The Welsh. You know, but um. And you think, that's a little bit unlikely. I don't, I don't see the sort of resources in the land that are going to help the Welsh. I mean, they, they sing well. Um, but um, beyond that, uh, it's a uh, hundred years. God says, do you know what's going to happen in a hundred years? Let me tell you. Be confident. And so he goes on, uh, again, making the same point, verse 26. Who told of this from the beginning so that we could know, or beforehand, so that we could say he was right? No one told of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I, the Lord, was the first to tell Zion, look, here's what's going to happen. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look around me, but there's no one. There's no one amongst the gods of Babylon to give counsel. No one to give an answer when I ask them. Do you see? They are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. And in 2023, do you not see? There are very hostile voices that will say the Christian faith is anathema. And in a liberal democracy, it's unacceptable. And you certainly can't have a political leader believing these things and running a party. And it's all twaddle. And these views that are expressed so forcefully and seem so powerful now, just in a few years will seem like such silliness, absurdity. They will go. They are, verse 29, wind and confusion. Israel, you can keep trusting me, says the Lord. Only I know the future. So it's good to sing, our God holds the hands of time in his hands when he moves the seasons bow to his commands. He's unchanging in all of his ways. He has no rival, equal to rival his name. 
He's the ruler of days. Back there, he said, look, trust me, in a few years' time, this one will come, and when Cyrus the Persian comes and smashes Babylon, then you'll know, won't you? And you can read the whole Old Testament, and the prediction, actually, one is coming. He will be born in Bethlehem. He'll grow up in Nazareth. He will die in Jerusalem. He'll ride in a dog. All the details of Jesus' life and his death and what he achieved and how he lived, they're all written there. Anyone else write it down? Anyone else predict the future like that? You can trust him, Israel. We can trust him. He alone knows the future. None others do. Look, how can we trust the Lord when our lives look like this? There's the first. He alone knows the future. Secondly, his servant will bring justice. It's not a completely different point because the future is brought through the servant. But anyway, his servant will bring justice. We're into chapter 42 now, um, particularly verses 1 to 4. Now, tangent. Uh, Some will know this is the first in Isaiah of the four servant songs, these four very explicit predictions of the work of Jesus Christ. And uh, the others in chapters 49 and 50 and 52, 53, they're in our next block. We'll look at them next time. We'll think about that much more when we do that. But this is the first of these four. They're just, oh, all of a sudden the tune changed. You've had this sort of slightly combative courtroom drama, and then the melody changes. So here's, you know, someone different. Verse 1, here is my servant whom I uphold. Literally, again, it's behold. If you hear when we're looking at chapter 40, behold, behold, see, look at my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Hard, I find, to read this without thinking of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's the servant. But the thing that gets is repeated most is that he brings justice. So we get it three times. Justice. Mishpat. Remember, this not just a right legal verdict, a transformed society. So verse 42, he will bring justice to the nations. It's universal. Verse 3, he'll bring forth justice in faithfulness or in truthfulness. Translate that how you will. In other words, it's not just that the, um, the ends justify the means. This is not a cultural revolution. We've got to go through some bloody period to get to something which we think is good. How he brings this is truthfulness and faithfulness. His justice is universal, it's faithful, it's truthful. And then the last one, verse 4, it's unstoppable. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And he's teaching the islands will put the hope in. In other words, the farthest parts of the world, the islands, the obscure places. Yes, Australia, I know, I know I always say that when I go to it. I know, I know, forgive me. Um, it's equal opportunity um, being rude to nations today. Um, Uh, But the furthest places, that's the point of the islands, the furthest places away. He'll bring justice. He will. Oh, how can we trust the Lord when the world looks like this? How can we trust the Lord when when my world looks like this? Justice is coming. 
He will bring justice. It's unstoppable. It'll be brought through truthfulness. It'll go to the nations. Justice will come. Oh, resistance is futile. I'm surrounded all day long by the wealth and the architecture of Babylon. They tell me that we've lost. They tell me resistance is futile, that I have to compromise, that I have to blend in, that I have to shut up with my stupid opinions. Ignore them all. The servant will bring justice. This is the world that is coming. The one who alone knows the future, who plans the future, the one who has the whole of time in his hands says, through my servant, this new world will come. He alone knows the future. His servant will bring justice. And in the meantime, he'll gently strengthen us. I just want to spend a little bit more time in these verses three and four in particular. He'll gently strengthen us. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. He'll not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So yes, he's thinking about this, this justice that goes across the nations, but here I think it must also apply to individuals. Look at his gentle patience. A bruised reed he will not break. A, a bruised reed, I, I think it, the, 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 it has more the sense of outward blows, whereas a faltering or a smoldering wick has more of the sense of inward fragility. It's, I mean, it's not absolute, but they lean in slightly different directions. A bruised reed, I mean, who grows up in a farming community, and some of us would have done, and uh, in the farmer's fields, there'd be some of the, you know, uh, the, 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 the corn, some just bent, gets knocked over early on in its growth, and it doesn't grow. It's pretty useless. It's not going to have a fullness of full head of corn on it because it's just snapped or bent in the middle. So it's useless, that. Get rid of it. But he doesn't. A bruised reed may be without purpose, it's not going to grow, but Jesus doesn't break it or snap it. A smoldering wick, basically a flame that's just about gone out. You know, you've got your, whatever it is, your posh-scented candles at home, and they, they get to the end, and they're just sort of flickering and fluttering, and you can see it's just about to go out. A lot of smoke, a lot of smoke, a lot of smoke, and then it's gone. That smoldering, flickering wick, it's about to die. You may as well just finish it off. Jesus doesn't snuff it out. And to apply that to the Christian believer, often we may well feel pretty bruised by the blows that life deals us. And we may feel like we're smoldering a little bit. Our Christian lives, just producing, a, to be honest, a bit of smoke, but not a lot of light or, or, or heat. Our own resources are just at the point of conking out. You can feel that way. And here's an encouragement why we wait, while we wait for the servant to return. He will gently treat us. He's very patient with you and me. 
forgive me, when I say this, I'm certainly not asking for any self-pity at all. In a small outward blows, small outward blows of my week, the first few days of this week, I was down, stomach bug, don't need to know the details, uh, but uh, out of action for a couple of days. But what felt more significant, I, I felt I was being slandered without sort of completely unreasonably, uh, without protection. I, I was wearied by the events in our denomination at the moment, uh, somewhat overwhelmed by a volume of work, you know, with a little staff light at the moment, and just, uh, now those are very, very small blows. But my inward resources were a bit too feeble for them, my inward fragility, my response to those small outward blows wasn't 100% godly, it was grumbly, a bit defeated at the beginning of the week, discouraged. How on earth can I stand up and, and preach when I'm so flawed and, you know, the smallest of blows sets me spinning? Jesus, why don't you get someone else to do the job? That was my week, I'm afraid to say. But the Lord Jesus, he will not break or quench. He will not snap or snuff out. And my week got a lot better when I made my way to Isaiah 42. Oh, okay. (laughs) Maybe I can do something of use. Maybe he'll keep me going and has something for me to do even this weekend. Because the wonder here is not just that he's patient with us, but that he strengthens us. There's a contrast in verses 3 and 4, or, or a parallel, that the, the translation, none of the translations bring out. I can't for the life of me work it out. Uh, uh, Helen, have we got that? So it's the same verb in verse, the same two verbs in verse 3 or in verse 4. So to go for a more, I mean, accurate is a bit pejorative, but, you know, uh, a crushed reed he will not break and a faltering wick he will not snuff out. Verse 4, this servant, he will not falter or be crushed. You see, we've got two problems. There are bruising circumstances of life and we lack the inner resources. He has never lacked the inner resources and is never crushed by the bruising circumstances of life. In fact, the things that we lack, he has. And he strengthens us. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? <laughs> you feel crushed? Jesus says, I'm not crushed. He said, Jesus, I, I'm just, I'm a smoldering wick. I'm a mixture of motives. Half of what I do is from bad motives, and I, I can't, I know, it's all right. I got all the good motives you need. I got all the resilience you need. I got all the encouragement you need. I got it all. But Jesus, it's all right. Yeah, you're useless, but that's no problem. I'll pick you up again and make you useful. How about that? What about next week? Yeah, I'm pretty good at this. Um, I am the Lord. He has the strength that we lack. One commentator puts it well. The pressures and blows that immobilize others will not deter this one. Others will rather find him with the resources that they need. He will not falter. Others will go to him for a resilience against outward blows. He will never be discouraged. Again, he has the strength that we lack. And so we go to him when we're faltering in faith and we feel like we're a smoldering wick just about to conk out. And he says, I've got all you need. 
He alone knows the future. How can we keep going? How can we trust you, Lord? Shouldn't we just blend in? Babylon's so impressive. I've just a bit beaten down. No, you can keep trusting the Lord. He alone knows the future. The others is just wind and noise. The servant, he will bring justice. And while you're waiting, he'll gently strengthen you. What you need to do, Israel, Christians, 42 verse 1, behold my servant. Here is my servant. And our response, sing. If you've been for any of Isaiah, that's always the response in the book of Isaiah. Uh, when, when the Lord speaks, he, he wants you to understand what he says, but he's not interested particularly in just intellectual comprehension. Oh, I know, I understand what is being said in Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 42. The response in Isaiah is always trusting obedience and sing. Sing. At every point, it's a strategic point in the book, the response is you sing. Because if you get it, here is resilience, here is strength, here is joy to get you singing. Chapter 42, verse 10. So here's what you and I are meant to do in response to the work of the servant. Sing. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. Uh, You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them, let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior who'll stir up his zeal. With a shout, he'll raise the battle cry will triumph over his enemies. Sing. Justice is coming. Sing. The servant will achieve this. Sing. Trust him. Demonstrate that as you sing, because verse 10, well, those who don't, well, they're left out of his kingdom. But how can we trust the Lord when our lives look like this? Behold my servant. Only the Lord knows the future. Any other predictions are pointless. The servant will bring in this world of justice. And while we're waiting, he'll keep you going. He's got all the strength that you need. Behold him. Sing. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, you know deeply, intimately, the blows of life that many here feel at the moment, the faltering, smoldering nature of our faith just about clinging on to you. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, there are all the resources we need. Father, you know that the temptation is just to assimilate to the culture around us, to blend in, to blur in, to think, what can we do? Uh, The voices are too strong, too powerful. Would we trust you? Know that you are the one who has planned the future, controls the future, brings the future. You do so through your servant. Thank you that we can look forward to the return of Jesus Christ, bringing in a world of perfect justice. And until then, would we behold him? Allow him to strengthen us. We praise you for his character. 
that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, would we look at him, enjoy him, cling to him, behold him. Amen.